just state the obvious. It's obviously Easter, and you all know that. What you may not know if you haven't been here uh, before in the last few weeks is that we are also in the middle of a series, and we intentionally put Easter right smack dab in the middle of that series, which we call Gravity. And in the midst of that series, we have made the really startling claim that gravity exists. It's everywhere we are, a fundamental reality, which we take for granted. You know, rock climbing or mountain climbing is dangerous only because of gravity. Skydiving works only because of gravity. Quite honestly, we walk because of gravity. Our feet are raised and can put down again because of gravity. I can be standing here with you and not be floating away because of gravity. It's a fundamental reality. I know this is a stunning claim we've been making, but we've been making another claim beyond that, which is as fundamental as gravity is as normative as ever-present, and as important for every moment of our life, so also is the gospel of fundamental reality. The gospel is the story of God seeking to redeem human beings and bring them back to himself. And we have said that the gospel is fundamental, as fundamental as gravity. And as simple as gravity is, as understandable by any three-year-old, but as complex as it is, so also is the gospel. So simple that every one of us can get it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes him might not perish but have eternal life. And yet so profound and so rich that it reflects every moment that we live. Well, today, perhaps clearer than any other day, we'll explain why the gospel is fundamental as we talk about Easter and the resurrection. Now, sometimes I think we answer questions that really don't need to be answered and really don't help very much. For example, you may believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you, you may not. You may be on the fence. But the truth is, you could be here and you could believe Jesus was raised from the dead and it could matter not a bit for your life. I mean, so what? What if, you know, God did some clever parlor trick and chose to have Jesus raised from the dead? It, it might not affect your life one little bit as most other historical events several thousand years ago don't affect you. I mean, what if it's just a nice little parable about, you know, at the darkest times, there's always a silver lining, you know, about the impossible never being impossible. What if it's a parable about, you know, opposing political power? But the resurrection, according to Jesus, opens up a way. It opens up a way to something so critical for our lives that, quite honestly, was never opened before. It kicks down a barrier, a wall, that had to be kicked down. It's a way. And to explain that, I'm going to use the words of Jesus, which makes good sense, as he talks to his disciples one day. And the context... Always got to understand the context. The context is this. Jesus, he just had the Last Supper. You know, that's where they all all got together and he's about to be betrayed and all that sort of stuff. Well, it had not gone really like the disciples thought. I mean, it had been a big week. You know, they'd come into town and everybody was cheering. Ah, It was great. And then things were going pretty well, but then they started to go a little bit sketchy. And then as they did the Passover supper, Jesus appeared to start to be bothered and kind of sad. And this was an unusual thing for them to see. And then he started saying things like at one point he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, "Ah." and then they try to figure out who it is. And he finally tells them who it is, that it's Judas. And then he makes this statement and says, I'm, I'm going to be leaving in a little while. And they don't know at all what he's talking about. And then he drops this 
bombshell is Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, you know, if you're leaving, I'm, I'm going with you. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm always with you. And Jesus rolls his eyes and says, Peter, you got a good heart, but you are the one who's going to deny me. I, I would never do that. Trust me. Three times you're going to deny me. So all this is sort of hanging in the air in the midst of this evening. And it's a relatively somber mood. And in that context, <coughs> Jesus says these words. And this is in the Gospel of John, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. It says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And he says this, and the disciples do what I think they often do. They cock their head to the side like the RCA dog, like, we have no idea. Was that supposed to help? Was that supposed to clarify? Because we're really not sure where you're going here. And one of them actually articulates it. And his name is Thomas. And he goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He's like, look, you're telling us, we have no idea where you're going. It's cryptic. So how can we possibly know the way? There, I've said it. And so Jesus gives an answer, which is a famous phrase. You saw it in that video. And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think at the moment it didn't help. Honestly. I think at the moment they're like, okay, so you're the way. I'm still not sure where you're going or what that means. In a way to what? What exactly is Jesus saying he is the way to? It's like those things you see in bumper stickers. Jesus is the answer. You go, but what's the question? You know, I am the way. The way to what? And at the core of that is this little illusion he makes in that verse where he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm providing a way back to God. That's what I'm giving you. Now, what's interesting about this statement is that Jesus says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm the nicest way. I'm the way that you have before you. I'm the most clever way. I'm the most interesting way. I'm the most creative way. I'm the most spontaneous way. I'm the most spiritual way. He says, I am the way. It's like, really, did you mean to say the way? Did you really mean to be that exclusive? And as if he wants to clarify it, he goes, mm -hmm. let me make this clear. No one comes to the Father except through me. Honestly, this sounds very un-Jesus-like. If you walk through Jesus' life, he's this incredibly inclusive person. Seriously, he does, you know, he wanders through small towns and, and everybody's expecting him to go to big cities and stand up in huge stages with multimedia and have a big message. And what he, he walks through towns and he talks to people on the side of the road. And, and if the prostitutes are having a party, he goes, okay, sure, I'll go there. People are drinking and carrying on. Sure, I'll hang out with them. The tax collectors, the collaborators with the Roman government who are getting money from the Israelites. Sure, I'll, you know, he can come over and I'll have dinner with him. Even He even hangs out with the religious types. I mean, really, clearly, the guy has no boundaries. He'll let anybody in. He's this incredibly inclusive person who just melds with all of society. The table's open with Jesus. And then this incredibly open, all-inclusive person looks at his disciples and says, I'm the way. No one is going to get back to God 
except through me. And it strikes at all of our sensibilities. As Kurt said, we don't really like choices, and we don't like being told there's only one choice, except at a restaurant. I really would like to be told there's only one choice because making choices in a restaurant for me is like, it's brutal. It's like there's too many things. So really, I would like somebody just to go, here, eat this. And then I'm okay, as long as it's not like internal organs. Other than that, I'm okay. Just give me something to eat. But other than that, I don't want to be told there's one choice because that's not a choice then. So why can Jesus say, I am the way, the only way? And no one gets back to God except through me. This is why. This, for your reflection, for your consideration, is at least why he says it. I'll tell you a story. I, I, um, once a month, I meet with three of my friends in a book club. The only rule of the book club is whoever chooses the book also chooses whatever beverage that we drink. And then we gather for about three hours and we discuss whatever the book is. And, and they are guys that I genuinely like and admire and respect. They're fine, upstanding men and they're all very bright. And we've discussed a whole range of different books. And the one that I w- suggested was How Soccer Explains the World. Because I don't know if you know this, I kind of like soccer. So anyway, we, we did that one. And it was fun. But this last week, somebody suggested a book that looked through the last week of Jesus' life. And myself and one of the other guys took decidedly different views on the book and on what the point of Jesus' death and resurrection was. And the guy that I disagreed with, really, he's a, he's a good guy. Seriously, if we weighed it up, I have a feeling on the scale of relative goodness, he's going to outdo me a fair bit. He's a good man. He's kind. He cares about the world. But the way that we looked at Jesus was radically different. Because one of the things that the book said was, the Bible never says that Jesus is a substitute for us. Never says that. It says that the whole idea of his his dying was, was meant to show us that the political ruling power, that injustice wouldn't stand. But he was never taking our place. He was never standing in our stead. He was never dying for our sins. That's just something in later American Christianity we've made up. And I thought, that's not true. How do I, how do I explain this to my friend? And so I went back through the Bible, and I started pouring over passages, and I looked all the way back in the second book of the Bible, Leviticus. I know, you've read it. There's a passage, this beautiful passage called the Day of Atonement, where all of Israel comes together. And as they come together, this is what happens. They all stand there. They just stand there and watch. And a high priest, one designated by God, he takes, he takes two goats, really. He lays his hands on top of their head. And it says he proclaims the sins, all the way things that people have done. He proclaims those sins on top of the goat's head. And the people stand by and go... And then he does a curious thing. He takes one of the goats and somebody is appointed to take the goat outside. Banish it. And the other one is put to death. Curious. In that passage, God seems to be making this metaphorical point that we've done something that warrants us being cut off, separated from God. And somebody, an innocent third party, is going to take our place. And then I fast forwarded and came to this passage in 
the end of the Old Testament in Isaiah, where it says that somebody would bear our sin and die in our place. And then fast forward again, and you come to the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark when he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then fast forward again, and the writers, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, they finally grasp and they understand. And they said, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason why the death and resurrection of Jesus, the reason why he is the way, is because he alone stands in our stead, bears our sin, dies for us, and eliminates the breach between God and man. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are intended to bring us back into a relationship with our Father. It is not intended to give us a more moral way to live. You see, the other way of looking at it might give you a way of life. It will not give you a way back to God. Because the bad news of Christianity, see, there's bad news and then there's good news. The bad news is we are separated from God. Not a little off. We're separated from God. That's what God is trying to demonstrate with that metaphor in the Old Testament of the Day of Atonement. He's trying to demonstrate. You need to understand something. There's a problem. You've cut yourself off from me. And I want you back, but you need to understand that you are separated. I can give you back. But it's going to take a death for a death and a life for a life. Somebody will stand in your place. And if you were here Friday night... You may not notice this. I mean, I, I would flatter myself to believe people remember what I say. I don't remember what I say. Every year at Tenebrae service, our Friday night service, I always use the same, I always take the same word. If you weren't here, we walk through the seven words of Christ on the cross, the seven things that he says through seven different creative elements, mine being the least creative, and me speaking. I always speak in the same part where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Because to me, it's just such a staggeringly simple and profound phrase. Here he is. He hangs on the cross. He is standing in our stead. He has just screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he is cut off. He stands in our place. And just as he says, knowing that all is now completed, in that critical moment, he looks around and he says, I'm thirsty. So very human. Because for us to become like him, he would have to become like us. The story of Christianity, the story of the gospel, the story of redemption was a God so passionate about people that he divested himself of his glory and came to earth and walked on earth so that he could stand in our place and die for our sins. So that three days later, he could rise from the dead and forever put death in the grave and allow you and I a way back to God. Not a way to live, not a way to be more moral, a way back to God. Now, that might be fine as far as it goes, but I think, as I said, we often answer questions that are not the right ones or not fully enough. You see, what if you say, okay, I understand what you say, but... Who cares? You know, there are a lot of ways to places that I don't care about, even if I know. Like, I know the way to Newark, New Jersey. I don't care. I've been to Newark, New Jersey. If you're from Newark, New Jersey, I'm sorry, really. I know how to get there. Really, exactly. I don't care. 
There are a lot of ways to places that you could tell me exactly how to get there. I don't care. So if I tell you Jesus died and rose to give you a way back to God, you could easily go, okay, so what? Why do I want this? I mean, Kurt's question was, how do we choose a faith? Maybe the bigger question is why? Here's why. In my opinion, here's why. Here's the so what. Do you know those moments? Those glimpses in your life. Like there's a strain of music. There's not even any lyrics. But there's a strain of music that you hear and something in you sort of jumps. You feel a, almost like there's a call from somewhere else. That's waking your heart. And then it's gone. Or you read a line out of a book or a line out of a poem and something starts to resonate. And then it's gone. Or you're walking somewhere in mountains or by the ocean or you see a tree or... I'll never forget for me, it was... There was a day in my teens when I was walking in the woods and... I'm not all that reflective, but seriously, this is what happened. I was walking in the woods and I came across this clearing where there was a stream rolling through it and something happened. I couldn't articulate, but something I was like, it almost felt like a window had been opened and something rushed in. And just for a moment, I got a glimpse of something more and then it was, then it was just a stream. You know those moments? They break into the mundane. They're not excitement. You know, they're not skydiving. They're not a thrill of something you're experiencing. There's just suddenly this rush of a moment that seems to articulate it without any words that there's something more to our lives, that our soul jumps. It's what the writer C.S. Lewis called being surprised by joy. The moments when we get a glimpse. And if we are at all reflective... We ask the question, what was that glimpse? What was it about? And where was it from? It's a glimpse of what we were made for. We were not made for the mundane. We're not even made for an exciting experience. We're made for the reality of God. That's what our hearts and souls were constructed for. In those rare moments, in those glimpses, we sense a call from a distant country that seems to shriek out to our soul, awake. And just for a moment, we're more alive. And it's gone. The way back to the Father is the way to the reality of those glimpses. Your heart was made for God. Your heart was made to know Him. In those moments, we sense something more. In our relationship with God, we get it. For me, becoming a Christian, there was a logic involved with it. There was a certain amount of philosophy involved with it. But I'll never forget several days after I became a Christian. It wasn't when I did, but several days after I said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I want him into my life. Several days after that, there was this moment and it was a rush. I I was sitting on a bench in a field in St. Louis, Missouri. Out of nowhere, there was this rush, this sensation, this knowledge that I am now connected to my Father in heaven. 
and it will never change. And my soul was filled with something that I'd never experienced before, but have now experienced since. You were made for God. The soul resonates. It comes alive in the presence of God. And so, what does Jesus do with his death and resurrection? He does not provide you with a parabolic way to look at life, that life is always a bright size. He crashes down a barrier between you and God so your soul can actually connect to the God for whom you were made and so you can be alive and free. And that's what the resurrection is about. If you haven't been here before, I've said that in this series, I don't have a hidden agenda. I despise hidden agendas. I have an actual agenda. And my agenda is twofold. If you are someone who is outside of faith, which means I don't know that I believe any of this stuff. My goal for this series is that by the end of this series, you would be in faith. Not so we can add some more numbers to our roles, but because I want your soul to be alive. I want you to experience the presence of God in your life. And it's for you. He calls out to you. Heaven heaven and earth was moved so that you could be in relationship with him. Not so you could be fine-tuned. Not so you could have better relationships, although that may happen. But so you could be connected with God. And breathe in the air for which you were made. One of the things that song articulates is, why do we wait? Why do we stand on the edge? We struggle with commitment. Why do we wait? We fear making that choice because then I can't make this choice. But as Kurt said, at some point, we've got to make choices because to make no choice is to make a choice. And I would invite you. God calls you into a relationship with him today. He may have been calling you for months If you feel that sense that God is calling you to himself today, don't wait. Don't stand on the edge and wait. There's nothing more to wait for. A relationship with God can begin today for which your heart was made. Take a moment during our service, during the rest of this time, and simply say, God, this is what I want. I want the barrier broken. I felt the glimpses. I know the wall. Would you tear the wall down between you and me through Jesus? Because I want you in my life. And then come talk to us after the service. You can come into our brand new, very nice, swank prayer room. Okay, it's not swank, but it is nice right over there. You can come up and talk to me after the service. God wants you with him now and forever. That's my agenda. My other agenda for you, for those of you who are in faith is to not forget, is to take hold of the deeper reality that God has made you for himself. We live far too much in the mundane. And sometimes these marker moments, much like baptism marks you, that you're saying, yes, I'm in a relationship with God, a terribly important marker moment once you come to that place. So also, Easter is a marker moment. It's that moment when it reminds us, not not to be sort of frivolously happy, you know, you know how I feel about the whole cheerleading thing and You walk into a service at Easter Sunday at 6 a.m. and somebody says, He is risen! And you go, I'm not risen. I'm barely awake. It just feels so foreign and we feel like we have to gear ourselves up. The point of Easter is not for you to go, Whoa, Jesus is risen and I should feel vaguely good. 
The point of Easter is God has ripped down the barrier between him and you. And you have an opportunity this day to live in his presence. To breathe in his spirit. It says in one of the songs of the Old Testament, in his presence there is fullness of joy. In his right hand there are pleasures forever. Take this day if you're in faith to slay the things that hold you captive, that quite honestly keep you from joy, and wade into the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you do that which you do so well, just crash through all of our pretensions and all of our fears and our hesitancies and Give us that moment of clarity that's so vivid and so rich that we cast aside everything that makes us hesitate and we wade fully into your presence and we live as your sons and daughters connected to you, breathing the air of eternity. I pray, Spirit, you would be in the midst of our room today. Draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we start this time of worship, as we engage in this, particularly if you're here for the first time,